From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. And we have made it to the end of another season of the show. This will be our last new episode with everyone before we take a summer break. And uh, we are recording this on June 1st, um, which is roughly five months after all of us, the last time all of us were together on the show, which was in kind of the, the wake of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. It also marks one year since the death of George Floyd and a hundred years since the Tulsa massacre. So lots of things to kind of take stock of and then uh, maybe end by talking about what you guys are going to be watching uh, as we move forward through the summer and beyond. I think the fact, Jenna, that we think of it as an insurrection here on Democracy Work could in itself be seen as a partisan statement uh, because uh, polls show and actions, I think, in the U.S. Congress clearly demonstrate that there is not a universal acceptance among Americans that this was indeed a, an insurrection. If you look at, for example, the way some uh, Republican elected officials responded immediately in the aftermath when I think they were scared and not sure where all this was coming out, I'm thinking of Kevin McCarthy, I'm thinking of uh, Mitch McConnell and some others, that it has changed and that uh, many Republicans have sort of settled on a position that it was not an insurrection. It was perhaps a protest. It was perhaps a black flag operation by Antifa. It might have been a bunch of tourists who got out of their lanes, but that it, it was not an insurrection. And, uh, you know, I think that because the decision has been made not to have a bipartisan national commission to investigate what happened, we will never as a country be able to decide that it was indeed an insurrection or an attempt at an insurrection. Well, we can be pretty confident that there's going to be a partisan investigation, but its, um, its conclusions will be tagged by the Republicans as being merely that, right? That there's nothing serious, nothing we should, you know, um, you know, take to heart or even really you know, consider with regards to what they end up saying. Yeah, well, but I mean, I don't, I, I think what's changed is the political calculus, right? I mean, at that moment, if you're uh, Mitch McConnell, your expectation is that, or your conclusion was that this has to break. This has to be the moment where um, Trump loses his control of the party. And uh, he wanted to get out in front of it. And you saw that with Lindsey Graham and other people who were, you know, definitely in his corner, um, in Trump's corner, I mean. But subsequent to that event, Republicans have not abandoned Trump. And therefore, they have no choice but to kind of backtrack on their condemnation of this event and to pretend that they believe these things that they know to be false, <laughs> that they pretend that this was not uh, Republican, almost exclusively, Trump supporters almost exclusively, and that they were driven by the rhetoric they heard repeatedly from Donald Trump. And I think the vast majority of people in the Republic, the Republicans in the House and Senate know that to be false, but now they can no longer feel like they can say that it's false. And that's one of the reasons why we are where we are. 
So, you know, historically speaking, we've had these commissions. There is a commission after JFK's assassination, after 9-11, the 1968 Kerner Commission, which was in response to, you know, series of urban uprisings in the late 1960s. And the reason why these commissions happen is to both, on some level, dispel any conspiracies but also to come to some truth, to uh, come to some kind of nationally agreed upon narrative about what happened. And I, I think that the move away from wanting to do this January 6th commission, I think also just tells us that we need to keep in mind that parties change, that they evolve. And that the Republican Party is becoming an anti-truth, anti-democratic party, just in the way that the Democrats were an anti-truth, anti-democratic party at some other point in time. It's sad to see, and it has major implications for democracy, but I think that we should not forget that parties can evolve, that someone like Liz Cheney is (laughs) not... (laughs) you know, gaining the favor of her party that tells us that we're moving toward something. What? I don't know, but certainly away from what we are used to. Yeah. I think there are two directions we can go right now off what people have said. And I want to throw them both out there. One is I think we give Republicans sometimes too much credit or we give Trump too much credit in terms of defining why Republicans are doing what they're doing around these areas around democracy. I felt from the very beginning with the stuff about the 2020 election being fraudulent or whatever it is, that Trump's really the legitimate winner and that Biden isn't, that Republicans would just see this as an opportunity to make an argument about further tightening voting restrictions. And so they see this very much as satisfying an agenda that they've had for a long time. I was just reading this weekend, old comments from William Buckley at the National Review from the 1950s about some of these same kinds of issues. This has been a conservative position for a long time. They've never been that comfortable with democracy. But the other is, and I think what what Candace was just saying is really important about this idea of sort of national narrative. You're seeing this in a couple of different areas. You know, look at what's going on with the 1619 report and all of these actions that are being taken against schools that they can no longer teach that and then, or that they can no longer, they can't teach anything about critical race theory or they can't teach anything about racial discrimination. And you know, the attacks against 1619, from what I can tell are very rarely factual, that there's something wrong, that, that, that it's incorrect in what it's saying. It's all a matter of interpretation. They don't like that interpretation. They don't like the story that the 1619 report says about America. So they don't want students being taught that story. And so you're seeing increasingly, I think, where we have these sort of, and this is just so consistent with polarization and all of that, where you just have different different American stories that are emerging. There's going to be a different story about what happened on 1-6. There's going to be a different story about what happened in the 2020 election, which is going to influence all elections going forward. One of the things I think that you're bringing to my mind, Michael, is when do we learn from our mistakes? And just like you're saying, we're going to have these kind of multiple narratives around these different issues. It's a great part of the reason why most Americans don't know what the Tulsa race massacre was. 
and um, that there were Mm -hmm. multiple stories then that still aren't cleared up because people did not want to take into account the evidence and witness and testimony that was available then. And so here we are a hundred years later. Now we have people coming to Congress at 107 years old who are one of the last survivors of probably one of, you know, someone, someone said before Pearl Harbor was bombed, Tulsa was bombed. I mean, we've had bombs dropped on American cities Mm -hmm. by American citizens. And this is not a story that was captured correctly by the media or Congress. And now a hundred years later, we are still kind of like, well, what really happened? And so, you know, what lesson can we learn from that about what this is going to mean about January 6th or even 1619? What are the implications for democracy when we don't have I don't even want to say a shared narrative because some of the shared narratives that we have are inaccurate, but maybe, I don't know. It's almost like, do do we have a tradition of truth telling? I think there is a, you know, the the old line is that uh, hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. And I think that is something that we've always had is this, if we're not willing to say things that are true, We are at least willing to say that the truth is an ideal worth pursuing and that we should strive to live up to it. But there's something distinctive as well about this moment. And that is the idea that there are absolutely indisputable facts that are utterly irrelevant to a significant portion of the American populace right now that, you know, you can tell them that 60 court cases were brought with regards to the election, it doesn't matter. You can show them that there have been 400 cases that have been brought against people who were uh, in the Capitol, criminal charges, and not one of them is a leftist. It doesn't matter. So I just think it is, we've come to this epistemological morass that simply makes any effort to move forward literally impossible. I don't agree with you, Chris. I don't agree with you that we are in a very particular... Okay. I do and I don't agree with you that we're in a very particular moment. And that is me coming from this as a race scholar. Is that historically speaking, you know, the epistemology of ignorance, right? Like aggressive ignorance and unwillingness to accept that we are a country that racism is a day-to-day part of the way that we do business. That is a truth that people have for a long time been unwilling to hear and accept. The difference here is that that same kind of epistemological morass is bleeding into everything. Maybe that's the difference, but I have a hard time to accept that, to say that there's something distinctive about the ways in which, um, like whether we are willing to kind of walk toward truth or move to like, you know, to, to come together to talk about it and maybe come to some conclusions in order to move forward. Like the irony for me about this is like, that is, I think what I'm saying is, rooted in critical race theory, which is 
the very thing that many state legislatures and increasing numbers of school boards are trying to prevent American students from learning about, though, I mean, that's actually like patting themselves on the back when they don't deserve it because most schools don't teach critical race theory. (laughs) But right, like a component of the theory is that racism is a normal part of the way that we work. And historically speaking, there have been basically a consensus, a large consensus, maybe not consensus, but an overwhelming majority of Americans have been willing to ignore it aggressively ignore it. But what I do think is distinctly different, Candace, is the refusal of the loser of a presidential election to concede defeat and instead to continue to say that he actually won. And I mean, that that feels really different to me about this era. And with ramifications throughout our democracy, you know, we've talked about this before on this show. We, we will never again be able to come to the end of an election, at least not a national election. There is now no end. There is no, there is no authoritative conclusion for a lot of these people, for a lot of these people, to an end of a presidential election. You can just audit it again. You can inspect the ballots yet at 300th time. Judges can't be accepted because judges are just partisan anyway. I mean, you just go on and on. And I think that the attack on the electoral process is something that that is kind of new in American politics, at least in the modern era. The idea that there are people who think that America was better when when it had this kind of racist agreement and when not to mention sexist, not to mention um, Christian. And so the end of how democracies die says that we are confronted with an incredibly difficult task and one that has never been achieved in human history, which is a genuine multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy. And I think you could just look upon this as a comparison between those who see that as a task worth striving for, recognizing just how incredibly challenging it is, and those who want nothing to do with it. And that does seem to me to kind of connect these things, that, that the, the facts that make you want to deny racial reality, race, the realities of racism, are the same ones that make you want to deny the realities of the insurrection. Mm-hmm. Walk away from them. I mean, literally plug your fingers in your ears. Yeah, I mean, wh- wh- what you're saying actually about about the legislatures and the uh, I mean, Democrats years and years ago just made such a big mistake <laughs> by not really focusing politically on states and seeing the national government as the only body that really mattered. And, yeah, and really uh, and the president. I, and I think that was because, you know, the Great Society, the New Deal, these all came through the national legislature. This was all the mm-hmm. Democrats' domination at the national level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they gave up control at the state level. They didn't really fight. They didn't really train candidates. They didn't really put the money into it. And they lost track of the fact that the rules are made by these state legislatures. Mm-hmm. You know, fundamentally, that's where so much rests. 
And, you know, Republicans understood this. They understood this because of how well prepared they were for the 2010 elections, about which we are going to feel the effects for many, many, many years. Because once you're able to gerrymander and get control, then you need a landslide to be able mm -hmm. to get back control on the other side. Mm -hmm. And look what's happening with some of these voting rule changes. You know, I think a lot of the stuff that's happening with these voting rules that have to do with making it harder for people to vote are something of a red herring in that they attract the most attention. They're the most easy to mock. You know, oh, I can't bring water to somebody online in Georgia. I should be able to bring water to them. And they're so clearly discriminatory in some ways, like things about Sunday voting and the way that the effects of uh, voter ID fall. And uh, I could go on and on about that. But what many of these states are doing that is really going to be fundamentally important is that they're shifting power out of the hands of executive branch officials and they're moving it into the legislatures yep. to decide who actually won an election. Mm -hmm. And this is where the damage to democracy is. You know, we were talking about how democracies die and, you know, they talk a lot about the norm of forbearance. And the norm of mm -hmm. forbearance is that you don't use your constitutional authority to its extremes. Uh, like to overturn the results of an election. But that norm is gone for at least many of the Republicans around the country. That norm is out the window. And so yeah, you saw, they, you saw. they'll use Sorry. that power in any kind of way that they can in order to retain powers. So a couple of weeks ago, Chris and uh, Jenna and I had an opportunity to talk with Shayla Romney Garrett, and then we also had Danielle Allen on. And both of them discussed this idea that there have been parts in our history where we just seem to be at a really low point, and maybe we're at that, that low point right now, and maybe it can get worse. Um, but they also kind of talk in their own different ways about possibilities to get out of this situation, to improve our democracy, if it means, you know, perhaps from Shayla's perspective, like the progressives were, you know, a group of people who in their own way, you know, maybe it was exclusive, but they, they were, um, they, they still kind of work toward implementing policies that produced it, more democracy. And Danielle Allen discussed this kind of, you know, like nationwide bipartisan group of people who could come up with ideas about how to improve democracy that, you know, people across the ideological and partisan spectrum could agree on. I'm just curious to know if you buy either of these arguments right now in this moment in time. The one thing that I guess I would say it's the best of a series of bad bets. I don't I'm not really hopeful because of this, you know, this epistemological shutdown. But I do think that the Biden administration has made the judgment that the best path for democracy is to convince the people who feel shut out that the government is there to help them as well. And to turn the temperature and so, down. Well, and to turn the temperature down. Yeah. And so I don't know if this is going to work, right? I mean, there was this poll by a rural policy group that's found that, you know, the majority of people in the rural counties do not know 
that there was absolutely not one Republican vote for the COVID relief package that Biden passed. And they don't know that, it, that it's, it's exclusively the product of the Democrats. So I don't know that this is going to overwhelm that genuine impact, positive impact on people's lives is going to overwhelm this tribal identity that has so far swamped everything, including facts. But I do think that it is a good strategy. I think it's, it's worth trying, but I don't think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic I, I feel like we've never been at a point where another, a third or fourth party is more needed than we are right now. And, you know, so for many people who are uncomfortable with liberalism or uncom uncomfortable with what Democrats might want to do, have no option. They just have nowhere to go. And, you know, in some countries in that uh, some of the statements that have come out of the Republican Party, their refusal to accept the results of the election might not be tolerated, might not even be legal. It might not be legal. But yeah. There would be other parties to go to. But we have only two parties. What are we going to do? Just right. get rid of one of the main ones because it's not playing by the it's not playing by the rules. And so a lot of, as I remember, some of the Daniel Allen suggestions actually did involve things that would bring in additional parties. Am I correct about that? Like rank choice voting? Yeah, I mean, was, rank choice voting. Yeah, yeah multi-member districts, multi all, districts, all types and, of things, yeah. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, I think those sort of structural changes are actually really, really critical because the option of just having two parties just makes that kind of intense polarization feels like inevitable, especially as one party moves further and further out to the extremes. There's nowhere else to go. Now, we know that many Republicans or some number of Republicans have advocated moving to another party. But, you know, in the American political system, this is really, really difficult. And they I mean, they talk about it increasingly. And what you're seeing now with many corporations becoming uncomfortable with many of the actions within the Republican Party sort of speaks to that. But you know, they, they see their future. Isn't that the difference with Republicans that have been talking about breaking away? You know, if you think about Charlie Dent, who, who was involved in that, and, and some of the others who have been a part of that, it's that they are fighting against the populist movement of the Republican Party. They, they want a Republican Party that was the old Republican Party, right? It was corporatist. <laughs> it represented higher income people. It represented more highly educated people. But we're moving away from that. That's not the direction we're going. And so I think that the anti-democratic nature of the Republican Party is only going to increase as it sees its future more as a populist party. Candace, maybe we'll give you the last word here. Well, as you were talking, I was thinking about this map I used to have. It was like a map and a timeline mixed together. And it had empires on there. So it, it, it had like the bigger the size, like, you know, the greater the empire. And then, you know, over then it also time and then it would get smaller, you know, so like the Roman Empire was on there mm -hmm. and it was, you know, that's a big part. And there's, you know, the Ottoman Empire. And then there's um, then the U.S. shows up and it's really small and it's really short and I always like this map because I always wonder, like, when is that going to end? And the way that you all are talking is like, I can't imagine us getting any better. Well, then that just means we're only going to get worse or stay the same. And so it, it made me think about that map timeline combo and to 
think, well, maybe we're closer to seeing that part end than any American would ever imagine anyway, right? Because Americans don't have a conception that things that happen in other countries will happen here. And it sounds like what you're saying is that we're seeing in the U.S. many things that are happening in other countries, empires, democracies, different societies that just kind of disappear themselves. Yeah, well, I think we might be growing up to the idea that democracy was not the end result and that we would reach democracy and then there we are. But really, democracies are fragile. We've seen that around the world and we have seen democracies die through elections. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we have seen that actually there is quite a bit of backsliding from democracy. There are going to be some parts of the world that are going to become more democratic over time. And there are others that were democratic that may well become less democratic over time. And you know, it seems like we're falling into that category right now. It doesn't mean it won't change. You know, the country is, you know, more and more people are educated than used to be. I mean, there are possibilities out there that liberal democracy will come out of all this stronger than it was. But it's, I think that, you know, certainly I get the feeling that, that we all lack the imagination to really understand exactly how that might happen. I don't. You don't? Okay, no, good. I say this. As Black woman who has a PhD, and my ancestors, I'm not sure, could have imagined where I am, or maybe they did. And so I think that I, it's actually almost like my responsibility mm-hmm. on some level to believe that we can be better and to do what, you know, like my part to make that happen. I think that one of the things that we've done and rightly so, is we've talked a lot about Republicans, but there are Democrats who are also making this very hard that to change institutions, rules, procedures that need to be changed in order to make a U-turn. So I don't want to both sides this, but I do think that it's important for us to recognize that we're all in this together. That is a great way to end. You know, I think that we, this season, as I, as you guys were talking, I was really thinking back on it. We've done a good job, I think, of talking about both the the challenges that we face and how insurmountable they, they may or may not be, talking about things like the voting restrictions happening in states across the country and, and things like that, gerrymandering, of course. But we've also had, like you said, people like, Danielle Allen and Peter Pomerantsev and others who are thinking about ways to make that U-turn that, that you were saying, Candice. Um, and I that's one of the things that, that I really like and I think I've heard from listeners they really kind of appreciate about our show is you know, the fact that we do sort of put things in that context, kind of show the, the full scope. It's not just all good or all bad. We kind of focus on the people who are, are working to put, put ideas out there, put, put policy changes out there. So We'll end with a little pat on the back for ourselves. And, and of course, thank you to the, the three of you for helping uh, make this happen week after week. Thank you to our partners at WPSU for producing the show and, and being great um, promotional partners with us as well. Thank you to everyone for listening. Um, over the next couple of months here, we're going to have some rebroadcasts, some 
bonus episodes. Um, you might hear from some other podcasts that we enjoy. But we will all be back with new episodes with uh, all of us in the fall. So for Democracy Works, I'm Jenna Spinelli. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Chris Beam. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.